37 Ways That Words Can Be Wrong Some reader is bound to declare that a better title for this essay would be 37 Ways That You Can Use Words Unwisely, or 37 Ways That Suboptimal Use of Categories Can Have Negative Side Effects on Your Cognition. But one of the primary lessons of this gigantic list is that saying, there's no way my choice of X can be wrong, is nearly always an error in practice, whatever the theory. You can always be wrong. Even when it's theoretically impossible to be wrong, you can still be wrong. There's never a get-out-of-jail-free card for anything you do. That's life. Besides, I can define the word wrong to mean anything I like. It's not like a word can be wrong. Personally, I think it quite justified to use the word wrong when, one, a word fails to connect to reality in the first place. Is Socrates a framster? Yes or no? The parable of the dagger. Two, your argument, if it worked, could coerce reality to go a different way by choosing a different word definition. Socrates is a human, and humans, by definition, are mortal. So if you defined humans to not be mortal, would Socrates live forever? The parable of Hemlock. You try to establish any sort of empirical proposition as being true by definition. Socrates is a human, and humans, by definition, are mortal. So it is a logical truth if we empirically predict that Socrates should keel over if he drinks Hemlock? It seems like there are logically possible non-self-contradictory worlds where Socrates doesn't keel over, where he's immune to hemlock by a quirk of biochemistry, say. Logical truths are true in all possible worlds, and so never tell you which possible world you live in. And anything you can establish, by definition, is a logical truth. The Parable of Hemlock. 4. You unconsciously slap the conventional label on something without actually using the verbal definition you just gave. You know perfectly well that Bob is human, even though by your definition you can never call Bob human without first observing him to be mortal. The Parable of Hemlock. 5. The act of labeling something with a word disguises a challengeable inductive inference you are making. If the last 11 egg-shaped objects drawn have been blue and the last 8 cubes drawn have been red, it is a matter of induction to say this rule will hold in the future. But if you call the blue eggs blegs and the red cubes rubes, you may reach into the barrel, feel an egg shape, and think, oh, a bleg. Words as hidden inferences. 6. You try to define a word using words, in turn defined with ever more abstract words, without being able to point to an example. What is red? Red is a color. What's a color? It's a property of a thing. What's a thing? What's a property? It never occurs to you to point to a stop sign and an apple. Extensions and Intentions 7. The extension doesn't match the intention. We aren't consciously aware of our identification of a red light in the sky as Mars, which will probably happen regardless of your attempt to define Mars as the god of war. Extensions and intentions. 8. Your verbal definition doesn't capture more than a tiny fraction of the category's shared characteristics, but you try to reason as if it does. 
When the philosophers of Plato's Academy claimed that the best definition of a human was a featherless biped, Diogenes the Cynic is said to have exhibited a plucked chicken and declared, Here is Plato's man. The Platonists promptly changed their definition to a featherless biped with broad nails. Similarity clusters. 9. You try to treat category membership as all or nothing, ignoring the existence of more and less typical subclusters. Ducks and penguins are less typical birds than robins and pigeons. Interestingly, a between-groups experiment showed that subjects thought a disease was more likely to spread from robins to ducks on an island than from ducks to robins. Typicality and asymmetrical similarity. 10. A verbal definition works well enough in practice to point out the intended cluster of similar things, but you nitpick exceptions. Not every human has ten fingers, or wears clothes, or uses language. But if you look for an empirical cluster of things which share these characteristics, you'll get enough information that the occasional nine-fingered human won't fool you. The Cluster Structure of Thing Space 11. You ask whether something is or is not a category member, but can't name the question you really want answered. What is a man? Is Barney, the baby boy, a man? The correct answer may depend considerably on whether the query you really want answered is, would Hemlock be a good thing to feed Barney? Or, will Barney make a good husband? Disguised queries. 12. You treat intuitively perceived hierarchical categories like the only correct way to parse the world, without realizing that other forms of statistical inference are possible even though your brain doesn't use them. It's much easier for a human to notice whether an object is a bleg or rube than for a human to notice that red objects never glow in the dark, but red-furred objects have all the other characteristics of blegs. Other statistical algorithms work differently. Neural categories. 13. You talk about categories as if they are manna falling from the platonic realm, rather than inferences implemented in a real brain. The ancient philosopher said, Socrates is a man, not, My brain perceptually classifies Socrates as a match against the human concept. How an algorithm feels from inside. 14. You argue about a category membership even after screening off all questions that could possibly depend on a category-based inference. After you observe that an object is blue, egg-shaped, furred, flexible, opaque, luminescent, and palladium-containing, what's left to ask by arguing, is it a bleg? But if your brain's categorizing neural network contains a metaphorical central unit corresponding to the inference of blegness, it may still feel like there's a leftover question. How an algorithm feels from inside. 15. You allow an argument to slide into being about definitions, even though it isn't what you originally wanted to argue about. If before a dispute started about whether a tree falling in a deserted forest makes a sound, you asked the two soon-to-be arguers whether they thought a sound should be defined as acoustic vibrations or auditory experiences. They'd probably tell you to flip a coin. Only after the argument starts does the definition of a word become politically charged. Disputing Definitions
16. You think a word has a meaning as a property of the word itself, rather than there being a label that your brain associates to a particular concept. When someone shouts, yikes, a tiger, evolution would not favor an organism that thinks, hmm, I have just heard the syllables tie and grr, which my fellow tribe members associate with their internal analogs of my own tiger concept in which, ah, crunch, crunch, go. So the brain takes a shortcut, and it seems that the meaning of tigerness is a property of the label itself. People argue about the correct meaning of a label like sound. Feel the meaning. 17. You argue over the meanings of a word, even after all sides understand perfectly well what the other sides are trying to say. The human ability to associate labels to concepts is a tool for communication. When people want to communicate, we're hard to stop. If we have no common language, we'll draw pictures in sand. When you each understand what is in the other's mind, you are done. The argument from common usage. 18. You pull out a dictionary in the middle of an empirical or moral argument. Dictionary editors are historians of usage, not legislators of language. If the common definition contains a problem, if Mars is defined as the god of war, or a dolphin is defined as a kind of fish, or Negroes are defined as a separate category for humans, the dictionary will reflect the standard mistake. The argument from common usage. 19. You pull out a dictionary in the middle of any argument ever. Seriously, what the heck makes you think that dictionary editors are an authority on whether atheism is a religion or whatever? If you have any substantive issue whatsoever at stake, do you really think dictionary editors have access to ultimate wisdom that settles the argument? The argument from common usage. 20. You defy common usage without a reason, making it gratuitously hard for others to understand you. Fast stand-up plutonium with bagels without handle. The argument from common usage. 21. You use complex renamings to create the illusion of inference. Is a human defined as a mortal featherless biped? Then write, all mortal featherless bipeds are mortal. Socrates is a mortal featherless biped, therefore Socrates is mortal. Looks less impressive that way, doesn't it? Empty labels. 22. You get into arguments that you could avoid if you just didn't use the word. If Albert and Barry weren't allowed to use the word sound, then Albert would have to say, a tree falling in a deserted forest generates acoustic vibrations. And Barry will say, a tree falling in a deserted forest generates no auditory experiences. When a word poses a problem, the simplest solution is to eliminate the word and its synonyms. Taboo your words. 23. The existence of a neat little word prevents you from seeing the details of the thing you're trying to think about. What actually goes on in schools once you stop calling it education? What's a degree once you stop calling it a degree? If a coin lands heads, what's its radial orientation? What is truth if you can't say accurate or correct or represent or reflect or semantic or believe or knowledge or map or real or any other simple term?
replace the symbol with the substance. 24. You have only one word, but there are two or more different things in reality, so that all the facts about them get dumped into a single, undifferentiated mental bucket. It's part of a detective's ordinary work to observe that Carol wore red last night, or that she has black hair, and it's part of a detective's ordinary work to wonder if maybe Carol dyes her hair. But it takes a subtler detective to wonder if there are two Carols, so that the Carol who wore red is not the same as the Carol who had black hair. Fallacies of Compression 25. You see patterns where none exist, harvesting other characteristics from your definitions even when there is no similarity along that dimension. In Japan, it is thought that people of blood type A are earnest and creative. Blood type Bs are wild and cheerful. Blood type Os are agreeable and sociable. And blood type ABs are cool and controlled. Categorizing has consequences. 26. You try to sneak in the connotations of a word by arguing from a definition that doesn't include the connotations. A Wigan is defined in the dictionary as a person with green eyes and black hair. The word Wigan also carries the connotation of someone who commits crimes and launches cute baby squirrels. But that part isn't in the dictionary. So you point to someone and say, green eyes, black hair, see, told you he's a Wigan. Watch, next he's going to steal the silverware. Sneaking in connotations. 27. You claim X by definition is a Y. On such occasions, you're almost certainly trying to sneak in a connotation of why that wasn't in your given definition. You define human as a featherless biped and point to Socrates and say, no feathers, two legs, he must be human. But what you really care about is something else, like mortality. If what was in dispute was Socrates' number of legs, the other fellow would just reply, what do you mean Socrates has got two legs? That's what we're arguing about in the first place. Arguing by definition. 28. You claim P's by definition are Q's. If you see Socrates out in the field with some biologists, gathering herbs that might confer resistance to hemlock, there's no point in arguing men by definition are mortal. The main time you feel the need to tighten the vice by insisting that something is true by definition, is when there's other information that calls the default inference into doubt. Arguing by definition. 29. You try to establish membership in an empirical cluster by definition. You wouldn't feel the need to say Hinduism, by definition, is a religion. Because, well, of course Hinduism is a religion. It's not just a religion by definition. It's like an actual religion. Atheism does not resemble the central members of the religion cluster, so if it wasn't for the fact that atheism is a religion by definition, you might go around thinking that atheism wasn't a religion. That's why you've got to crush all opposition by pointing out that atheism is a religion is true by definition, because it isn't true any other way. Arguing by definition. 30. Your definition draws a boundary around things that don't really belong together. You can claim, if you like, that you are defining the word fish to refer to salmon, guppies, sharks, dolphins, and trout 
but not jellyfish or algae. You can claim, if you like, that this is merely a list, and there is no way a list can be wrong. Or you can stop playing games and admit that you made a mistake and that dolphins don't belong on the fish list. Where to draw the boundary? 31. You use a short word for something that you won't need to describe often, or a long word for something you'll need to describe often. This can result in inefficient thinking or even misapplications of Occam's razor if your mind thinks that short sentences sound simpler. Which sounds more plausible? God did a miracle? Or a supernatural universe-creating entity temporarily suspended the laws of physics, entropy, and short codes? 32. You draw your boundary around a volume of space where there is no greater-than-usual density, meaning that the associated word does not correspond to any performable Bayesian inferences. Since green-eyed people are not more likely to have black hair, or vice versa, and they don't share any other characteristics in common, why have a word for Wigan? Mutual information and density in things space. 33. You draw an unsimple boundary without any reason to do so. The act of defining a word to refer to all humans, except black people, seems kind of suspicious. If you don't present reasons to draw that particular boundary, trying to create an arbitrary word in that location is like a detective saying, well, I haven't the slightest shred of support one way or the other for who could have murdered those orphans. But if we consider John Q. Wiffelheim as a suspect? Super exponential concept space and simple words. 34. You use categorization to make inferences about properties that don't have the appropriate empirical structure, namely, conditional independence given knowledge of the class to be well approximated by naive Bayes. No way am I trying to summarize this one. Just read the essay, Conditional Independence and Naive Bayes. 35. You think that words are like tiny little lisp symbols in your mind, rather than words being labels that act as handles to direct complex mental paintbrushes that can paint detailed pictures in your sensory workspace. Visualize a triangular light bulb. What did you see? Words as mental paintbrush handles. 36. You use a word that has different meanings in different places, as though it meant the same thing on each occasion, possibly creating the illusion of something protean and shifting. Martin told Bob the building was on his left. But left is a function word that evaluates with a speaker-dependent variable grabbed from the surrounding context. Whose left is meant? Bob's or Martin's? Variable question fallacies. 37. You think that definitions can't be wrong or that I can define a word any way I like. This kind of attitude teaches you to indignantly defend your past actions instead of paying attention to their consequences or fessing up to your mistakes. 37 ways that suboptimal use of categories can have negative side effects on your cognition. Everything you do in the mind has an effect, and your brain races ahead unconsciously without your supervision. Saying, words are arbitrary, I can define a word any way I like, 
makes around as much sense as driving a car over thin ice with the accelerator floored and saying, looking at this steering wheel, I can't see why one radial angle is special, so I can turn the steering wheel any way I like. If you're trying to go anywhere, or even just trying to survive, you had better start paying attention to the three or six dozen optimality criteria that control how you use words, definitions, categories, classes, boundaries, labels, and concepts.